Welcome to Drink Beer, Think Beer, the podcast that gets to the bottom of every pint. I'm John Hall. This week, I'm talking with Matt Wilson of Zero Gravity in Vermont. And I'll get into it in just a minute. But first, a reminder to check out BeerEdge.com to sign up for our newsletter where you get behind-the-scenes info on our podcasts as well as original articles. And don't forget about This Week in Rausch Beer, the Facebook group, where we're discussing all kinds of smoked beers and where to find them. So when I first started drinking beer, one of the breweries that opened my eyes and palate to flavor was Magic Cat. Thanks to its number nine, the beer was a fruity pale ale with whimsical labels, clever facts and saying under the bottle caps, and it had a price point that didn't make my budget scream. And of course, a lot has changed in 20 years, and that brewery doesn't dominate the conversation or even register too much to folks anymore. So last year, I wasn't too surprised when the corporate parent company of Magic Hat announced that it would be winding down operations and moving production to upstate New York. The brewery in South Burlington, however, would remain online, and Zero Gravity, a popular Vermont brewery founded in 2004, would be taking over the space. I had only passing memories of Zero Gravity, having visited once or twice, but not for at least the last five years. And taking over a well-known spot with a lot of capacity was intriguing, and I meant to reach out earlier, but, you know, the pandemic got in the way. So just after the start of this new year, I was able to call and talk with Matt Wilson. He's the CEO and co-founder of the brewery. And in a state that knows and celebrates its IPA, Zero Gravity, which of course does make hop forward ales, has put a lot of focus on lagers. It also takes sustainability and growth seriously, and is also looking to the non-alcoholic space as well. We get into it quick, and Matt shares his insights on what the future holds for Zero Gravity. Here's our conversation. Has Vermont's beer culture changed in the last 15 years? Uh, Absolutely. Yeah, the last 15 years in Vermont have been, as I suppose they have just about everywhere else, um, super exciting um, and constantly changing. I think like when you look at beer trends, the beer community, um, you know, it's practically evolving uh, monthly, daily, seasonally. usually for the better, sometimes for the worse. Um, But, you know, Vermont, thankfully, has been a home to some of the best beers and breweries in the world throughout that last 15 years. And um, it's certainly been an exciting scene to be a part of. Um, 15 years ago, 2005 is right around when we opened Zero Gravity. Yeah, that's Um, that's why I asked. Because, I mean, Vermont obviously had a beer culture before you opened and a pretty robust one and a pretty respected one. Yeah. Yeah, no doubt. We uh, we're lucky to have our roots in that early culture too. my business partner and our brewmaster, Paul Saylor, was brewing down at Catamount Brewery yeah. in Windsor, Vermont um, back in the 90s. Which is now Harpoon. Yeah. Which is now owned by Harpoon. Indeed. Yeah. In fact, they just re-released the Catamount IPA a year or two ago, which I thought was kind of fun to see. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so Paul had been part of that early scene, you know, um, when there was... <clears throat> You probably know better than I, but, you know, just a couple hundred breweries out there um, and just, you know, a few in the state of Vermont. I don't know what the number is now, but I think it's over 40, um, which doesn't sound like a lot. But because Vermont is a pretty small population base, it's we're still one of the highest per per capita. Um, And certainly, I think when you talk about the quality of the beer coming out of the state, um, always been known, I think, to to be producing some of the best craft beers. Um, So. 
Yeah, when I think about Vermont, though, especially those early days of Catamount and and Vermont Pub and Brewery, and you know Greg Noonan and, and what 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 all of these early pioneers in your state did was there's a, a really firm bedrock of beer tradition and beer respect and beer innovation as well. And so when you all opened up though, and and I guess it's fair to maybe call you like a second generation Vermont brewer, right? You know, uh-huh. maybe third, yeah. but, but second, I think is, is probably more accurate. Um, Wait, which one are we in now, John? Which which wave or generation? Just so I can. Well, the hell if I know these days. I mean, you know, you know, generations can be monthly now at this point. It's uh, yeah. Oh man, those guys who opened up in November of 2020. God, old men. You know that kind of thing. Um, but but I, I, you know, in thinking about when you opened up, um, when you did. There was already a tradition there. There was already established breweries that were known all throughout your state, but also in other states, you know, past your borders. Mm-hmm. What did you want to, what did you want to be when you opened? It's a great question. Honestly, you know, when we opened, um, we were a brew pub, a 10 barrel brew pub located inside um, American flatbread um, yeah. here in Burlington, you know, wood fired pizza place. And you know, at the, at that time, honestly, like one of our major goals was just educating the the general beer drinking public about what great beer was. Not even, you know, via our our products and what we were putting out, but even just like trying to introduce people to great beers of the world. Um, and when we opened that that brew pub, we kind of had a fifty fifty model of like our beers poured alongside what we viewed as some of the great beers of the region and the world like what because honestly like at that point in 05 like great there, there was not a lot of great uh, tap rooms like you know there, there wasn't the three pennies or the farmhouse or any of those <laughs> bars that people know up here now yeah. um you know that really became a thing i think in the last 10 years where where places were sort of like known for this craft beer selection like you would find at like a wine bar or a cocktail bar um there certainly were some good ones like, you know, in San Francisco and New York and stuff like that. But, you know, here in Burlington, the scene was still pretty, uh, pretty young, pretty naive. And like, you know, thinking of, uh, you know, Guinness and and some of these other things is like really good beer at the time. Samuel Smith Stout was like, you know, super heady up here uh, because of the scene that was happening. And not to take anything away from those products, but, you know, like the, like the scene itself needed to be educated. And I think you know, Paul really had his eye on that early on is like, if we want people to understand what we're doing, we need to people, people to understand just like, what's the baseline for good beer. Um, and so that was like a big part of it. And honestly, it was, it was a fun ride to be on. Cause at the time I was still learning my chops about beer and was still kind of thinking, you know, the darker, the beer, the better kind of thing. And you know, he opened <laughs> my eyes to, to beers like, you that's, know, that's such, that's such a counter counter argument to a lot of folks who you know would you know would say the lighter the beer the better sure no doubt i think i a lot of my experiences with with craft beer up to that point had been through college and and uh you know going to concerts on the you know the, the lot scene and drinking drinking oatmeal stout and things like that and it was like you know different than what i drank before with talking about like macro lagers and so wow this is different like kind of what the ipa signified i think to craft beer it's like different from the the yellow fizzy stuff and so in my mind you know 
how how different can I get? Well, the darker the better. That must be the case. And then you know, really understanding like the nuances of great great lager and how that's different from say you know Miller or Budweiser or whatever. Um, be- before we get too far down a rabbit hole, though, when you were talking about having you know world class beers on tap alongside your own, what what rounded out that tap list from, br- from, <laughs> from you know beers that that you weren't making? Yeah, yeah, great question. Honestly, like. Thinking back, obviously, 15 years ago, it's a little hazy, but, you know, on the Vermont <laughs> side, um, you know, we didn't uh, we didn't represent a lot of like uh, Magic Hat, um, but there was certain, we certainly were pouring Switch Pack. Uh, we had, uh, um, boy, uh, McNeil's. We were lucky enough to get, you know, McNeil's breweries offering sure. back then. They were distributing a little bit. Um uh, on draft or in those uh, in those twenty two with the with the cool labels, we would get them on draft. Yeah, like that's the duck cool. Breath IPA. And, that's uh, cool. Um, like it was funny. They were like one of the first brewers to set up their own distribution. They kind of identified this little little uh, wrinkle in the laws that you could do it if you gave it a different name. And so they their guy would show up, you know, every couple of weeks with these <laughs> crusty looking kegs, but they contained this this beer that you couldn't really get anywhere else. Um, so yeah, those you know the Vermont scene was very limited at that point. It was like it was like you know Long Trail, Magic Cat, Otter Creek, Wolliver's. Those yeah, Wolliver's. Before, but, yeah. but you know nothing uh, nothing that people look at today as being you know those, the Holy Grail of Vermont beer was really being um, existed at that point. Um, so then we'd be looking at a lot of like Allagash products um, from the region. We were excited about those uh, Brewery Omegang. Um, you know, from the world side, we you know I remember. You know, Spotten was was regularly available. Vorsteiner, um, Einger, we'd you know be lucky to get some kegs of Einger and, and things like that. Um, but yeah, right, it was so, it was a different different realm back then for sure. But that's the interesting thing where you're talking about like you know Spotten, right? Where in 2005 I was 25, so I was you know I I remember being wowed by Spotten. And being like, yeah. holy shit! Like this is this is a great beer. Like, and yeah. I it, there's some intangibles to it that I didn't know at the time what they were because they just weren't revealed to to my palate or to my brain yet, kind of thing. But it was like, you know, drinking it. Somebody would hand it to me and be like, wow, this this tastes good. Um, when was the last time you had a spot? In- <sighs> it, it it's been too long. Yeah, because I, I, I mean, haven't had one in ages either. I wonder how it holds up. Yeah, but. It, but I think that those beers in our memory from our younger selves do a service to the beers that we drink today. And it's curious to me to, to, to hear that like you had that on as a pinnacle or something that you had so much respect for that it, it, it could take up one of your draft lines. And now you're making loggers uh-huh. and how much because because Vermont to me in those early days was always almost like the East Coast version of San Diego, where it was like here we got some dank IPAs, here we have some, you know, some 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 nods towards weed, uh, hop mm-hmm. forward, uh, you know, progressional and and be it whatever Greg was doing at at uh, Vermont Pub and Brewery or or Kimmick or you know like whatever like. <sighs> It was always more of a hop forward place and not a place. Vermont was never a state that I really thought about loggers. So 
your totally. brewery is pushing that forward now, and so are a bunch of others in your state. But like, you know, you guys have multi-state distribution on your loggers now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. W- was there yeah. always a need for it, and somebody needed to fill that gap, or was that a natural? progression of what your local consumers were looking for that's a good question too i you know honestly i a lot of what we set out to do with loggers was representative of what we were you know trying to do with saisons as well and um you know mild beers you know low alcohol session beers and um you know to some degree gruits we were brewing gruits quite a bit more in those early days um <laughs> did you lose uh, a smoked bet beer. smoked beers we were all right well smoked beers are fine those. everybody who yeah. listens to this podcast know that smoked beers are yeah <laughs> well it was funny like I, you know one of the first uh, the first out of state uh wholesaler uh, wholesaler uh, agreement we put together was for new york state we work with remarkable liquids down there and the sure. guys are awesome they know great beer and yep. and you know we sort of sat down to talk about what we were gonna you know what what our plan was and he goes we'll take just about anything you make except for smoked beers or, or gruits he's like i just we cannot sell those things in the marketplace and um but you know i think smoked beers you could get away with today if, if, if today you know, for sure. only because yeah. of the you know the popularity of the this week in roush beer podcast but you know mostly it's gruits are a tough sell they really are i mean honestly like we've had a lot of I don't know, it was always it, it, the gruit guys were always like the ones who were a little too into going to the ren fair every weekend like for my taste <laughs> Yeah, you know, we used to do this funny thing. We did two two, you know, prominent ones a year, one on the winter solstice and one on the summer solstice. And oh, and we and, and I'm I'm blaming Paul for this. I'm blaming Paul for this. You know, he went to Hampshire College. Like of course you guys did. Of course it was like tied to the solstice. Yeah. Oh yeah, it had yeah. to be. It had to be. And oh, it's the equinox. Whole... Here is our Gruit. Yes. Um Yeah. Yeah. We we did this whole this whole, you know, dog and pony show where we where we walked the cask of it from one end of church street to the other all banging drums and dressed in you know fur and, and carrying torches just for the spectacle at all and you know a couple of my college friends saw some photos on facebook of that and they just like never ever lived <laughs> let me live it down it was pretty funny um but yeah, back, back, to, back to the original question like what what were yeah. we doing with loggers then and and, and how does it fit in with gruits you know basically what we were doing was we were you know, showing our one of our strengths, which I which I think is that pretty much any style that we take on, we can produce. Um, I, you know, I think in a world class type of a way, we we've 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 always made um, beautiful saisons. Um, say what you want about those groups, they were beautiful beers. Uh, well, no, and, I, I mean it's easy to make fun of it, but like, yeah. but back in two thousand five, I mean, it was anything to sort of stand out, and it was anything totally. to buck the establishment, right? I mean. N- 2005 it was still such a a, a a weird place in american beer where you could you know oh, we got a beer with no hops in it you know and everybody's making hoppy beers or everybody's making macro lagers or like i i get why you were doing it and if they tasted mm-hmm. great like that's that's cool like i mm-hmm. you know it's easy mm-hmm. to make fun of it now um no in sort of a you know in a in a jokey way that's not at all serious or you know disparaging your character but mm-hmm. yeah we haven't we haven't uh we haven't put put out i don't think one in the last couple of years but the i tell you what that that uh gruit community they are relentless so many people will email us sure it's like you know, five hey, guys when, when's, when's the gruit coming back? 
the Gruet yeah, community. Uh, no, the, all right. See, I, I was going to give you a pass on it, but now you're talking about the Gruet community. <laughs> They're, Who, they're out there. Who's out who's there, emailing man. you, and why is it one guy named Tim? <laughs> yeah, he's a really nice guy. Though, you know what can I say? <laughs> like no, but are are there actual people who like multiple people that are not just split personalities that are actually reaching out to you and saying? Yeah, it's, why don't you please agree with it again like and please do it in twenty two bombers. Right. It's not exactly, exactly. Uh, it's not, it's not just actually the Gruitz. It's always like the funny, funniest, like least like like we made, uh, you know, a squash beer, uh, called Sasquatch. Uh, I don't know. We used to make it at the brew pub, um, every fall or whatever. And, you know, thankfully, thankfully about five years ago, I just said like, guys, we, we got to retire this. Like we can't be making pumpkin squash beer anymore. That stuff is just too tired. But again, like every year, when's the Sasquatch? Because it's like these people just for some reason, you know, the worst beers are the ones that people just can't let go of. I think um, I don't know what their plate is, but I've led you down too many paths at this point. But (laughs) you saying something is too tired. Sure. How do you come to that conclusion? And I want to get back to lagers and and why you're making lagers. But but yeah. I mean, there are well, some places that put out stuff every year because they're expected to, because mm-hmm, they've mm-hmm. gotten used, to, they've gotten the customer base used to that. This is what they're going to do. What's the metric in house that tells you that something is too tired? Yeah. Well, interestingly, you know, moving from a brew pub model only, um, which we did for like our first seven years, you know, oh five to twenty twelve, I think it was. Yeah. You know, you wanted a beer, you had to come to Flappard and drink it there. Um, you know, that shift to now we are packaging beer to be distributed to, you know, all these other places. You get a whole different type of feedback from the customer and what sells and what doesn't sell. You know, if we did a we did a peat smoked IPA one time called Hopscotch, and it was basically like drinking, uh, you know, half IPA, half Lafroy. It was this smoky, hoppy crazy thing that if you liked any of those flavors man you were just in seventh heaven when you sat down and drank this beer but like it would take five months for that beer to pull through uh on that tap line uh because there you know so few people liked it you know if you if we tried to distribute that beer people would look like like we were crazy um you know i think like you know a, a beer like a squash beer um you know the, the feedback is pretty pretty immediate when when the public doesn't want it um you can like with the gruits and things like that pouring them only at the pub i don't know you can hand sell it you can talk to people about it you can really educate people about what it is and it's interesting and you have total control over that story and and why you're pouring it why you think it's important that you try this and i don't know it's easier once you start to open yourself up to this broader um critique or broader you know broader public i think you learn pretty quickly what works and what doesn't um and uh, it's pretty clear that, you know, that certain things just don't go over anymore. Um, you know, I think it's, I think it's really interesting when you see a brewery who's putting out some of the styles now that, you know, have been kind of looked at as being old and in the way. And, you know, they get a bunch of attention for it from the, the beer nerds in their, in their 30s and 40s that they sort of miss the days when that stuff was popular again. And, and I, I love I love seeing that, you know, for us we've we've really you know come to focus on certain styles you know the pills near the green state lager being my favorite um 
that are pretty trendy <laughs> right now. I, you know, IPAs, those are. I'm laughing uh, because before we started recording, you told me that you were going to be dropping in Green State Lager references, and uh, I'm going to give you a chance to to extol its uh, its it, its many virtues, but you know, it, it, that was subtle. That was good. And I'm just, I'm not going to let it pass at this point. Like it's just, yeah. Well, when you have, when you have, you know, one of, if not the best beer in the world in your stable of products, it's hard to not talk about it. It's hard to, it's hard to be humble when you have a green state lager in your hand and, and uh, you know, what can I say? It is, it is that beer. So, yeah. So, all right, let's get into that because talking about, the best beer in the world. It, it, it's it's a subjective thing, and you know we're we're recording this in mid January of, of 2021, and you know who knows where the republic will be when this actually airs. But like starting in early November through the end of December, I get a lot of emails where people are like, "Oh, we're gonna do a roundup, and you know we'd love to know like your best beers, your definitive beers, your desert island beers, you know." And and it's just people sort of looking to to fill up you know content and copy, and 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 I can appreciate that, um, but it is such a subjective thing where. You know what I like might not be what somebody else is like. You know, versus somebody else. You know, down the line, it's a beautiful thing about it, isn't it? It is. So you're saying that you know, Green State Lager, in your mind, is you know the best beer. Is it ever or so? So in the world, so so no other beer come touches that. Correct. (laughs) How do you justify the other beers that Zero Gravity makes then? How do I justify them? Why do we not just produce green state lager? Yeah. Like why have anything other than the best beer in the world? Gosh, John, with the hard hitting questions, let me, let me, let me take a step. Welcome to the Thunderdome motherfucker. Like, you know, (laughs) (laughs) well, because, because not everybody in the world has the same taste in beer. Right. I think that's clear. One of the things that I, I was actually, having a really interesting conversation with a friend last night about, you know, subjectivity. Right. And it stemmed from this. I don't know if you've seen this. um, I don't know if it's on Netflix. It's Fran Lebowitz produced by Martin Scorsese. I think it's pretend it's a city or something. I saw, I saw a a preview for it when we were, we're still catching up on Schitt's Creek. So uh, (laughs) I I saw a, we're so far, we have a four year old, like, man, like I, Uh I, I get like, 35 minutes a day to watch television you know and that's yeah. not breaking news so like it's right right yeah well but i've I'm seen it and I, I, I i've seen the preview i want to watch the whole thing yeah well it's it's hilarious i mean if you like her you're gonna love it um but you know she was being interviewed by uh by spike lee and he says you know you know talking about like michael jordan and how he compares to say the finest uh you know, painters or musicians or dancers and like, you know, him saying Michael Jordan's on the same level, right? He's the greatest at what he does. Um, and somebody could say, well, no, 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 no. It's not the same level. There's no way that basketball is the same thing as, as, you know, Duke Ellington or, you know, somebody in these other fields that they might regard, oh, as, you know, more important. And, you know, that's where it's like, okay, you can have subjectivity around who's the best at something, but then also subjectivity against, okay, what, what, you know, where do you draw the line? Am I, am I the best uh, dad in the world or the best chef in the world? Or, you know, what's more important than the others? And I think, you know, I guess I'm going there because I think, you know, subjectivity of what's the best beer in the world, you know, it does start on some level with 
what's the most important style of beer in the world. Um, if, if I'm not stretching that analogy too far, but you know, in my mind, Pilsner beer, uh, or light lager beer, I guess not just Pilsners, but you know, green state is a Pilsner style, um, is one of the hardest things in the world to make. Right. I mean, you know, this, there's very little to hide behind in that. Um, you know, there's not a bunch of, you know, fragrant dank hops to, uh, to hide, you know, and, uh, you know, malt character that might not be desirable or, uh, not, not unlike Chardonnay, right. Where you can sort of, you haven't added a ton of vanilla. Yeah. 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 So I don't know. I think it's one of the hardest things to make. Well, um, you know, there's more examples of light lagers, I think in the world than any other style. Um, and, uh, you know, I think we've achieved something that I value above, just about anything else, which is, you know, balance and drinkability and the desire to have another one. And my, you know, my all time sort of most revered beer drinking moments are those moments where you're passing time with friends, you're drinking, you know, one beer into the next, you're not really thinking about it too much. It's, 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 you know, one part of the evening, but not the only part of the evening. And in my mind, Green State Lager fits right into that scene. And for somebody else, that might be, you know, a hop forward IPA or a, or a pasty stout or a, you know, a, uh, a crushable, lightly hopped pale ale. And for that person, you know, maybe Green State isn't the best beer in the world. For me, it is. And it hits, you know, all those boxes that I'm looking for it to hit. But I think, you know, at the end of the day, like going back to you know, why make those other beers? Because uh, it'd be way less interesting if we weren't, if we were only making one beer. Um, and uh, we're not trying to please everybody, but I think we've, we've done a decent job of capturing, you know, capturing some of the most important styles in a really significant and meaningful way. Um, so I don't know if that, if that really gets at the heart of your question, but it's the best I could do on, on short notice. Could, could you have made Green State when you first opened? Um, I'll tell you what, we were releasing a couple of, um, light lagers back then. Our Munich Hellas was, I think on our original tap list. Um, that's a beer that I go back to. We, we usually brew that once a year now, um, as a specialty release. Um, I still think it's one of the best beers we've ever made. Um, the green state, I think we, you know, we took about six or seven months of, perfecting that recipe to get it right where we wanted it the right balance with with you know the hop and malt balance and you know i think we i think we first released that in 2012 maybe 2011 2012 and i think you know i think the palette uh the beer public palette was was ready for that beer then and um it was certainly i think a little ahead of like this current, you know, fascination with Pilsners. I think right, right now, I'm sure you've seen it too. Like yeah. everybody's talking about Pilsner beer and we, we very early on knew that we wanted to make one that we wanted to drink and we wanted to put it really at the head of our portfolio. Um, so, so that brings me back to my question, you know, nine questions ago, were there, what's the right word? Were, were the people who were showing up at, you know, Flatbread, were the people who were showing up at the pub, were they looking for something other than hops? Were they looking for crisp, clean lagers? Because 
uh, Ashley Carter from Beerstadt has said, you know, like, you know, lagers on a, you know, 200 year winning streak kind of thing. But like, you know, every year, you know, the beer writers are trying to say this is going to be the year of the lager. And I think that's just because it's been a low humming current of right. what right. beer drinkers actually want. W- w- was that the case? Like, were, were, were people saying, like, cool, like, you have, like, a new black IPA, you have a new Cascadian, you have a new, you know, hazy, you have a new, like, whatever. But were people just looking for beer-flavored beer? Yeah, they were. I mean, I think, you know, 05. Um, I mean, that was early started. in this conversation, but but I'm, I'm, I'm sort of just trying to get below the top level of yeah. the undercurrent, yeah. like, of... Well, fuck, man, a pilsner, cool, right? Right. I don't know if that's true, but I don't think people were thinking about them as cool at that point. I think you know there was a a a lot of different types of drinkers in Vermont in those early years, and for sure, the cool guys were were drinking IPA. I mean, you know, you were asking before what were those, uh, you know, those guest beers that we were pouring. I, I I totally escaped me, but Dogfish Head was just like king shit of fuck mountain back then right it was like the 60 minute the 90 minute um the stone beers were, were coming in from california and everybody was losing their minds about that smutty nose ipa um which i think was derivative of todd mott right smutty nose uh yeah yeah right like he was and he was at uh right. well at, uh portsmouth as well Port- yeah, he was Port- at Kenneth, right, right. he was at Portsmouth and then obviously at at, at Tributary uh, yeah. these days yeah, yeah. where he's just kicking ass and Yeah, but like yeah, so the cool ass. kids were the cool kids were definitely just drinking hops, you know, then too. Like it was it wasn't the, you know, it, it, New England or Vermont, you know, we like to make sure we remember that New England IPA started as Vermont IPA. Um uh, you know, that didn't come along until much later. Um, back then it was California, you know, West Coast IPAs were still really, really the king. And, and you know, Vermont has a, a really deeply embedded ski culture and snowboard culture. And we all know that those cultures are packed full of cool kids. And they were, they, it was all about hops back then. So the, the, there was a, um, an appetite for lagers and pilsners, but that was the real purists, the, um, the beer nerds, the home brewers, um, the people that, you know, a lot of people that went on to start the next wave of craft breweries. Um, I think, you know, it was, it would take us, uh, you know, a week or two to turn over a 10 barrel tank of, of our IPA. And it would take us, you know, eight, six to eight weeks to turn over a tank of lager. Um, and it would be a different, uh, a very different type of drinker. I think that was looking for, you know, we were doing Vienna's and we were doing, um, we've always done the Martin, um, that beer. I mean, we could, we could talk for an hour about Oktoberfest. Um, it's had a huge resurgence. Yeah, but we're uh, not going to do that now. Cause yeah. No. Okay. <laughs> I mean, we uh, can, but, you know, I think, I think to your point where you're going is, 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 you know, Pilsner's where they are right now, um, is a new thing. It's, it's kind of, it is cool in a way that then it wasn't cool. It was appreciated and loved, but I don't think anybody was feeling really cool about drinking white lager back then. The, the the cool factor though like so much of that like speaks to craft beer as a prop you know like like it's uh-huh. it's the people who are saying like oh like like it, it's the instagram set or sure. you know garrett oliver said uh, you know a couple of years ago that like hazy ipas uh were built for instagram like you know how you, let's take pictures of this this type of thing 
there was a time where people wanted to be seen holding a certain label or in craft, you know, in the early days, it was, you know, you're a bud guy, you're a Miller guy, you're a Coors guy or, you know, person uh, as it were. Um, but it, it's an interesting thing of if somebody was showing up at your bar, uh, at, at your brew pub, do you think they were being judged for the color of the beer in the glass or the label that was on their glass like versus now mm-hmm. not so much no i mean i i don't know exactly when it started i think we can probably point to hetty topper as being a mm-hmm. big um you know important marker on that timeline yeah um you know the the, the certainly the idea of like a white whale or a hard to get um, beer existed before hetty topper but that was i think really the one that that accelerated it and launched, you know, made, made the likes of Treehouse and, um, you know, all those other <laughs> of the moment brands that people are trading beers for and standing in lines for and, and Instagramming, you know, all over town. Uh, that was, I think that was the one that really started that type of craze. Um, before that, I think, you know, the beer trading scene that I witnessed anyways was, it was usually more about like, um, you know, the ones that were hard to get regionally. Like I remember this guy would come every year from to the Vermont Brewers Festival and he'd bring these a lot beers from Alaskan brewery. And it was like, wow, this is great. These are beers, you know, beers that we just can't get out here. Or, you know, the Pliny, Pliny the Youngers and all, and all those beers that were from California and just no opportunity to get them. And that, that was just great to share those styles. But it was not like this, like, you know, who's who list that you had to check off or have you had this, you know, this such and such triple dry hop release from this brewery. And if you hadn't, you know, you just didn't even know you, you were on the same level. Um, <laughs> it was, uh, that whole thing is, is a mystery to me. I think maybe because, you know, as I was described a few minutes ago about what my ideal drinking experience is yeah. it's so vastly different for differs from that drinker. Um, you know, I've seen it happen and I can understand why it's happening, but it, it <laughs> It's definitely, it, it's, I'm a little miffed by it still, honestly. In the top of this conversation, uh, you mentioned early Vermont breweries and Magic Hat came up. And you sort of had this, at least tonally, a dismissive kind of vibe to it. And a couple of months ago, uh, Magic Hat's parent company, which is... I don't know, some sort of conglomerate or something, um, announced that they were leaving South Burlington. Uh, They were going to move all of their production to Rochester, New York. And uh, rather than shutting down the plant, uh, the brewery, uh, you all were taking over. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. I I think that that... there, There is a sense of loss by a lot of beer drinkers who grew up drinking magic hat and who have a fondness for that brand of which I am one. And at the same time that press release also soothed uh, a lot of us because, well, that place will continue on making beer like it was intended to, you know, like Alan Newman wanted it to in the early days and et cetera, et cetera. With, with your talk of lager though, um, Mm -hmm. one, I want to talk about like, you know, why that space was appealing to you. Um, but two, 
what changes you've made to it? Because the last time that I was there, and admittedly that was maybe five, six years ago, um, five years ago, uh, you know, I, I was walking through the open fermentation ale tanks, and you're talking mm-hmm. a lot about locker these days, which, mm-hmm. you know, that doesn't work. So let's set it up. Um, Got two did, words for you, John. Hot yeah. tubs. Big hot tubs. <laughs> well, you're going to have to weld some seats to about, you know, like four feet from the rim just so that people don't drown. Otherwise, you know, that just becomes, you yeah. know, soil yeah. green cooking tanks. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, no, it's funny. How, uh, how, how did that come about? How, how did How did you all going from where you were to – you know, the previous magic hat facility. Yeah. How did that happen? Well, interestingly enough, um, you know, you mentioned Alan Newman, um, you know, he's a friend of ours. He's, he's a great guy. He still is in the area. Um, I'm sure you've chatted with him before. He's got a million million stories. Um, man's got the best eyewear in the business. (laughs) He does. You can't miss him. You see him coming a mile away. Um, he, uh, so, you know, he's, he's, a, he's, he's, he's a friend and we had heard, um, we had heard some rumors that he was actually working, potentially working on a deal of, of getting back in there to, to work on some projects that he was thinking about doing. And, um, the, I, you know, I, I don't, I don't remember what I can and can't disclose about that, but the, the long story short is that the deal, his deal kind of fell through. Um, and, uh, and right around the same time we had, we had really identified that we were a little bit behind in securing like a a real solution for what was a very successful 2018 uh, sales that put, that took our, you know, our production right up to the, honestly, the limits of what we could produce in our, in our production brewery on Pine street. Um, And so we had started to pursue, um, you know, some contract relationships for a little pressure relief valve and, the one that we thought we we had in line, which was from another local brewery here, won't say who, but it fell through um, for some different reasons, nothing, nothing bad, but didn't work out. And so we had, we had, uh, you know, for a little while considered that maybe Magic Hat wasn't the best place to to produce the beers because you know some of those maybe perceptions that existed about that brand out there weren't great and didn't didn't necessarily want to tie ourselves to to that and. And, uh, but eventually kind of, you know, dug around a little bit and decided, Hey, maybe this could actually be a a decent place to make one or two of our products. And at the same time caught wind that, Oh, by the way, this, this facility could actually be for sale. Um, so we, so we kind of pursued both, uh, both angles at the same time, you know, established kind of a plan to make some of our beers down there starting in summer of 2020. Um, and then in a parallel track, um, essentially negotiated, you know, the purchase of that, of that facility. Um, and it all, comes, it all came together during those first three, four months of COVID, which yeah. is just an absolute blur. You know, we're on these Zoom calls with uh, these guys down in Costa Rica, sorting all this out. And, and the way that it worked, we inked the deal, I think, July 1st, and we had already brewed a batch of beer um, via this other contract that we were going to do. So we had beer come out of there like July 6th. Um, <laughs> it was just like, and it couldn't have happened at a better, like, and we are, we, you know, we literally were just like stretched as thin as you could at Pine Street as far as squeezing every bit of beer. Because, you know, honestly, like, we didn't know it at the time, but beer sales didn't 
that weren't really affected by COVID um, for, for a lot of, I know a, lot, a ton of breweries, that's not the case. And, um, but for us, you know, a lot of our, our products were being sold in cans um, in the off-premise sector. And that is where sales really increased. Um, so we were, you know, we were under the gun of figuring it out. And it all just came together. Um, the stars aligned for us, I guess you could say. Is it, is it hard not to think about the new facility as magic hats? Um, you know, we pretty quickly, we, we found, we caught ourselves, you know, referring to it as magic hat, you know, down a magic hat, down a magic hat. And you know, it's right down the road from us. And, you know, we, yeah, we, I mean, we, I, I remember the last time that I was in Burlington and South Burlington, I left your place. I left the pub and went to magic hat. Like yeah. it's, it's not far. It's not far at all. Honestly, it's, we, we refer to it as Bartlett Bay. That's the the road that is on is Bartlett yeah. Bay Road. Um, so it's the Bartlett Bay facility. It's it's currently just being used to make beer. We don't have any kind of on on site tasting or or you know customer experience. Um, you know that's so specific to Magic Hat. What they built on there was so them. It was such you know so tied to that identity and Alan's vision for that brand that um, it's not something that we would ever try and step into and rebrand um, necessarily. Um, if we did it, we'd take a pretty overhaul but um you know one of the beautiful things about that place is that it truly has a world-class system in there it's a rolex system yeah that they put in um and kind of you know to your question about the square fermenters they they had a obviously a big portion of the fermentation space dedicated to the open squares um but they had also recently i, I don't know how, how recent last 10 years anyways you know, put on a whole different wing of conical fermenta- fermentation. Oh, yeah, space. no, those those Off I know, back. but like on the tour, it was, you know, hey, come check out our open fermentation, you know, make sure your watch is attached to your wrist, like that kind of right. thing. Right, yeah. right. <laughs> Have you done the tour at uh, Anchor out in San Francisco? Year, years ago, yeah. Oh, man, I mean, that was my first real exposure to that type of... Yeah, no, they, they, they wouldn't let me be on the plexiglass, which, which is probably a smart thing, because, you know... <laughs> What a beautiful brewery that is, though. I think. Sure. I don't know what the hell they're doing now, but uh, just that was one of the most um, uh, coolest experiences I've ever had touring a brewery. It was out there at Anchor. But, they but, it so but, well. but I think to, to, to the question that I asked earlier, though, is like Magic Hat itself had really put its stamp on that location. It wasn't just open fermentation, but it was like, here's our, you know, wacky low budget Willy Wonka thing to it mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. you know, I imagine that there had to have been some refurbishment to put your own stamp on it as well, but to refer to, to refer to it in house as the street, as opposed to magic hat, which I guess you guys were doing earlier. What, when does a place or does it feel like home now? Like, does it feel like your house? Yeah, you know, I if I think if it I think if it was non-COVID times, it would even more so because I think we would have had the opportunity to spend more time together in it and really truly christen it as our own. But and have fans it, come through. Yeah, well, well, no, honestly, like I don't. Maybe, maybe fan, like we at this point we've got no intention to open it to the public as a tasting room like it's not interesting you know, okay so it's, it's yeah that that side of it that what they call the artifactory that's what i was saying it's like so specific yeah. to alan's alan's vision for that brand 
And honestly, we basically gave him uh, pretty much a free run on any of that stuff that he wanted that FIFCO didn't take. So FIFCO took out like most of the brand, you know, specific stuff like, you know, old guitars that were signed or things from their Magic Hat day, uh, Mardi Gras parade days and things like that. Like they, they still own all that stuff. But there was like, you know, all these funky architectural details that they had put in. Um, that we just said to Alan, like, Hey, if you want to come get any of this stuff, please do like, it, you know, it means more to you. And he's, he's working on a project now that he might end up using. So like he, you know, we basically purged all that stuff. Um, and the goal, you know, eventually maybe to clean it up and use it as a, an event space. Um, we've got some ideas cooking for it that I think could be really fun, but at this point, you know, our, the face of our brand is, is on Pine Street now. Um, we've got a great tasting room down there, and, and the experience, I think, is fantastic. And, you know, the, that brewery really, um, it's a production-only type space, and, it, and, it's, and it's really well-suited for that. The part of town that it's in is kind of, I don't know, there's not really much around it that would, that would promote, like, you know, bar hopping or, you know, walking. It's not walkable at all. Um, so it's not a whole lot of desire on our part to, to make it a customer experience, um, at least not anytime soon. Where you guys have started making a non-alcoholic beer. Um, yes. Where's the future of that? Like, or, or, or what is the trajectory that you'd like to see it follow right now? Yeah, it's a good question. I, um, you know, the non-alcoholic sector is one that we've been sector. Is that the right word? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, segment, uh, segment, category. Yeah. yeah category. Uh, the category. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. Uh, yeah. It's one that we've been watching for the last three or four years. Um, we had a friend come to us, um, I think four years ago, who was somebody who was looking for a good NA beer. Um, he was also a very successful investor. Um, and he kind of like was like, hey, like, would you guys be interested in making an NA beer? Like, there's no good ones around here. And I want to drink a good one. And oh, by the way, like, I'm, I'm an investor. I watch this stuff. And I think there's a big future in this, too. He was watching like the what, what constitutes a good NA beer? Not, um, not to, you know, yeah, step on your I mean, money guy. But like, yeah, wh what's a shitty NA beer and what makes for a good one in your mind? As somebody who makes a, 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 a locker that, uh, that's the uh, best yeah. in the world. Yeah. 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 Um, I, you know, for sure one that you drink and you want to reach for another one, um, you know, that, that it has that, um, that desirability, uh, to just sort of blend into the, into the fabric of the evening in a way where you're not, you're not overthinking it. It's, uh, it's balanced. It tastes like a beer. Um, you know, in our, in our case, we released, um, you know, we, we started the, we started the brand, I guess, as a, as kind of a siloed off separate, separate company, you know, thinking from the perspective of zero gravity craft brewery being known for making world-class craft beer. Um, we came up with the name rescue club. Um, so rescue club club brewing company making world-class non-alcoholic beverages. Um, and we, we launched with our first, I guess you could call it flagship product, uh, just early this month for dry January. And it's a, it's an IPA style. Um, so hop forward versus, you know, a lot of what you'd seen prior to this recent pop in popularity of, of any beers, you know, all any beers were basically, 
you know, riffs on light lager, you know, the O'Doul's, uh, um, uh, well, basically you couldn't get a, uh, an NAIPA prior to a year or two ago. Um, and so, you know, that for us, that was like a, a step towards, you know, giving the craft beer drinker somebody that now knows what good craft beer is, uh, you know, for a non-alcoholic version. Um, so we're, we're really excited, honestly, you know, you asked where it's going of the potential to, to continue to grow that, you know, to different styles right now for us, it, it, it can only represent a fairly small percentage of our production based on how we're set up to make it. We, you know, I can't tell you exactly how we do it, but it, it yeah. requires a process that we only have the capability to do in our Pine Street facility. Um, so if we wanted to really scale it up, um, it would require another investment to put like the equivalent larger stuff down at Bartlett Bay. Um, so for us, it's uh, it's kind of a feather in the cap as far as what we're doing with your gravity at large and something that we're going to, you know, take a close look at over the next six to 12 months and decide you know, just how serious we think this can be and how interested people are. And, and, you know, if all the signs are good, well, I think we'll continue to invest and, and grow that part of it. But it's, um, you know, we see a lot of really cool synergies happening between the cannabis industry and the, and the NA beer stuff right now that I think sure. would be a really interesting way to take it. Um, certainly a lot of people in your field, you know, writing about it and talking about it. Um, so I think, I think there's interest there. I think if you look at the numbers, it's still a very, very small fraction of the overall beer beer world. But um, I, I can't tell you, like, I haven't seen people as excited about something that we've done um, in a really long time. So there's there's definitely something to it. I think there's a, a lot of people that never thought that they would drink non-alcoholic beer. I'm one of them who are now kind of interested in it. Um, I don't know about you, but yeah. I've, I've actually drank a few. <laughs> no, I, I have as well. And, uh, yeah, yeah. um, I mean, I, there's a, there's an appeal to it as long as it tastes good. So, yeah. Um, and yeah. I haven't had yours yet. So like, I can't, I can't, uh, well, we'll have to, we'll have extol to extol like you do as to the, you know, oh my gosh, the best in the world. Um, Matt, thanks for, thanks for taking the time and sitting down on the podcast today. I, I appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. It's been my pleasure. That's Matt Wilson of Zero Gravity. If you haven't yet, pick up some of their beers and try for yourself. And if you have, well, go get some more. A bit of housekeeping before we go. Make sure to head over to Facebook and join the This Week in Roush Beer group because there's always something smoky going on. And if beer audio is your thing, make sure you listen to the Beer Edge podcast with Andy Crouch for deep dive conversations with interesting brewery owners and more. Also, head over to BeerEdge.com for articles and to sign up for the newsletter. Plus, you should follow us on all of the social media sites at The Beer Edge. Every Monday, look for a new episode of Steal This Beer, and once a month, download the BYO Nano podcast. And please don't for, uh, forget to subscribe to this show and to leave a review. You can always reach me via email at John Hall, that's J-O-H-N-H-O-L-L, at BeerEdge.com, or on Twitter at John underscore Hall. Nate Weber does the music, and if you haven't yet, check out his new album called Gaps, where you can find that at nateschweber.bandcamp.com. Jeff Quinn designed our logo. And if you're interested in advertising on this show, you can reach out to Liz Melby. She's at liz at beeredge.com. I'm John Hall. New episodes of this show release every Wednesday, and that's when we'll be back again to drink beer and to think beer.